Surprise! We are coming to you early because we are excited to bring you part one of another five-part series, just like the one we did last fall. We'll be releasing the episodes periodically throughout the next few weeks, but the entire series is available right now on Patreon. So, if you don't want to wait, join now and get the entire series and all of the other benefits that come with it. And speaking of Patreon, before we go any further, we want to thank our new patrons. Jennifer Vickers, Jojo Logan, Stephanie Dalton, Missy Denham, Marie-Yves Saint-Hilaire, Aaron Rogers, Must Have Cheese, Bonnie, Rat Basket, and Noah Henriksen. Thank you so much for your support. Patrons get a lot more 13. Extra stories each month, including over two years' worth of extra episodes, updates on the show, merch, and... Access to our patron-only Discord server, where you can chat about the show or whatever else is on your mind. And right now, the entire five-episode series, all at once, instead of having to wait for new episodes to drop. Learn more at patreon.com slash 13pod. We'll put a link in the show notes. This month's series is called The Mist in the Trees, written by Ian Epperson, and includes voices from some of your favorite 13 actors, like Shelby Scott, Emma Sherjarko, Nate Dufort, Dustin Parsons, and of course, Ian Epperson and me, Brooke Jeanette. Okay, here we go. Are you ready? When I was a kid, we lived on a big plot of land about a mile past the city limits. It was up on a hill, set way back from the road, but it wasn't hidden. The hill sloped up gradually, and we were at the very top. It meant that we could see a long way in every direction. At night, we used to sit on the porch and watch headlights and taillights snake around down below. And way back behind the house, At the edge of the property, maybe two football fields away, there was a forest. It was a great place to grow up. My mom used to say that when she and my dad retire, they'd turn the place into an orchard, like something from a Hallmark movie. She loved that kind of thing. I don't think it was ever a serious plan, but my mom and dad loved to dream. When I was in middle school, something happened at the local baseball fields. It happened on a weekday. I don't remember why I was home from school, but around nine in the morning, we heard something off in the distance. It was the Little League fields at Ecton Park. The park was also just outside of town and it's where the kids' baseball and soccer teams played. Every kid in my town spent a lot of their summers at Ecton Park. Living just down the road, we were familiar with the sounds of summer that came from the park. Every Saturday morning, you could hear the games off in the distance, the loudspeaker chirping out players' names and numbers. The only thing was, it wasn't a Saturday, and it wasn't summer. What are they doing over there? It's a school day. She was right. Why would there be a Little League game when school was in? We shrugged it off and went about our day. 
but it kept going. It wasn't constant, but every few minutes, we'd hear a quick burst of sound, and then it was gone. Muffled, echoing voices, words you can't quite make out. Sometimes, there would be as much as 30 minutes between them, and we'd forget all about it. But there it was again. It kept on through lunchtime, and then into the afternoon. When my dad got home from work, Mom told him about it, and he agreed. It was strange. Night fell, and the voice on the loudspeaker kept on. My mom and dad went outside. Our front porch faced the park. Maybe there's a tournament or something going on. But on a school day? And where are the lights? She was right. Anytime there were night games, the big lights over the field would be on. The sky would be bright. But it was a normal dark night sky. Finally, my dad decided to go and check it out. And he asked if I wanted to come along. I had been intrigued all day, so I didn't hesitate to say yes. Are you sure it's a good idea for her to come? I mean, come on. What could it really be? My dad's confidence made me feel safer, and I definitely wanted to be part of solving the mystery. We made the short drive to Ecton Park. I rolled down my window. I can still remember the feeling of the wind on my face and hair. We slowed down as we pulled onto the little park road. Somehow, I still expected there to be lights or car headlights, or some sign of people, but there was no one. I started to feel anxious, and I think my dad could sense it. He started talking, just filling the air, trying to lighten the mood, but it wasn't working. We drove by the dark tennis courts, the picnic areas, and the playground. The park looked different at night and I didn't like that I couldn't see much outside the cone of the headlights. It felt like forever, but it probably only took a couple of minutes before we were in the main parking lot. A big, empty expanse of concrete, ringed on all sides by baseball fields. Dad turned the truck off, and all of a sudden, it was quiet. Why don't we just sit here for a minute and see what happens? And that's what we did. Only a few seconds passed, and there it was. It felt like it came from all around us, and we both jumped. I'm gonna go take a look around. Do you wanna come, or do you wanna wait in the car? I thought it would be scarier out there, walking around in the dark. But almost right away, I regretted my decision. I rolled up the window and locked the doors as I watched him get further away across the lot. He made his way toward one of the baseball fields. Each field had its own booth right behind home plate. It's where the announcer sat. Maybe someone had left one of the sound systems on and it was playing on a loop. The whole thing took a few minutes, but it felt like forever. He'd be out of my line of sight for a couple of minutes, 
and I'd feel a little twinge of fear begin to take root in my chest. But just before the panic took over, he'd come back out into view and make his way along the fence line, past the dugouts, and on to the next field. I startled and let out a yelp. A moment later, he finished his rounds. Well, everything's locked up. I don't think there's anything we can do. I felt a wave of relief when he got back into the truck and started the engine. We made our way out of the park and back home. When we got home, he told my mom what we'd seen. Nothing. And honestly, even if he'd found an open booth with a sound system running, he wouldn't know how to turn it off. He used the house phone to call the police and let them know what was happening. Maybe someone could get in touch with whoever ran the sound system at the park. Later, we would find out that someone had been working on the sound system and was playing back tape of old games as tests. When they'd finished up, they had just forgotten to turn it off. We weren't the only ones to hear it. There were farms on all sides of the park. There were even parents there during the day with small kids who heard it. Everyone just assumed that someone else knew what they were doing, and no one wanted to be the person to complain about it. It's the most Midwestern explanation possible. It would be deep into the night before someone got out there to deal with it. It was past my bedtime. It was a school night. I laid awake and listened as every few minutes, another burst of muffled voices would play in the distance. And then I heard something coming from the other room. Sometimes, when mom and dad thought we were asleep, they'd put on old records. Old, even for them. My dad thought it felt fancy and cultured. I heard them trying to talk quietly and keep their laughs under their breaths. And somewhere in the middle of all that, I fell asleep. That was all a long time ago, a little more than half my life, but I still think about that night a lot. Now, I live on the north side of Chicago, not far from Wrigley Field, and sometimes I can hear the speakers from Cubs games in the distance. And just like that, it brings me right back to that night and to the year that followed it. I think about that night a lot when I'm in periods of transition, uncertainty, or just in a rut. And that's exactly where I was in my life on the night this story began. I was thinking about riding in the passenger seat all those years ago with my dad. I think about that night mostly because of what happened the next morning. That was the morning that my dad left for work and never came home. 
he only made it a mile or so down the road. A truck came around a turn too fast, crossed the yellow line, and my world was never the same again. I remember watching as my mom pushed down her grief. She was trying to stay strong for me and my brother. But I also remember that grief coming out in small ways, especially that first year. She started staying up late, watching movies from the 80s and 90s, from the time when she met my dad. I'd hear it all from my bedroom at the end of the hall. I was always a night owl, and I was always listening. When I'd venture out long after midnight, she'd be asleep on the couch, the blue light of a finished VHS tape on the TV. She couldn't sleep in silence anymore. I didn't understand it at the time, but now I realized that she couldn't let herself be alone with her thoughts for very long. She went on long walks around the property. I'd see her way back at the edge of the tree line, far enough that you could barely hear a shout from the house. She bought things on impulse, like a camcorder, even though I never saw her use it. And she started relying more and more on caffeine and alcohol to pick her up in the morning and to wind her down at night. I asked her once what she was doing down in the woods, but she changed the subject. Feeling the protective urge to not share her darkest moments with her middle school child, After Dad was gone, my grandmother came to stay with us more and more, too. At first, Mom said it was just to help out. But over time, it was clear that it was Grandma who needed the help. She ended up moving in with us after she left the gas stove on and somehow managed to survive the night. After she moved in, Mom kept her drinking and her walks to the back of the property until later at night, after my grandmother went to sleep. Grandma didn't like the woods, and she used to warn us to stay away from them. She would tell us stories, the kind that are meant to keep kids from wandering too far and getting lost. But I saw other kids playing in the woods sometimes. When me and my brother Donovan were little, we'd go back to the end of the property, and we'd hear them laughing and playing. Sometimes they'd even wave at us to come play, but Donovan was too shy. First thing in the morning, I would see them from my bedroom window. They would be running through the trees, running and laughing. And mom didn't mind being back there. It seemed to be the only place she could find peace. There were times when my own morning would manifest in strange ways. I would be home alone in middle school or high school and I would swear I could hear Dad's voice from the other side of the house. But mostly, I remember waking up in the middle of the night. Sometimes it was nothing, just trouble sleeping. But other times, I'd have that feeling that I was being watched. Familiar objects around the room would look distorted and exaggerated. Shadows would feel sinister. And then I'd look to my bedroom door, and it would be open. And in the doorway would be a figure, standing there, leaning against the frame, silhouetted by the kitchen light down the hall. I couldn't make out the face 
or any features, just the shape. And even though I couldn't see anything else, I just knew from the way it leaned, from the familiar feeling that welled up in me when I saw it. I knew it was my dad. And most of the time, I wasn't afraid. Even though I wasn't scared of it, I never spoke up or gave any indication that I was awake. I didn't know what it would do. I laid there, and the next thing I knew, it was morning. My grandmother's health went downhill fast. She had to go to a long-term care home after that first year, and she passed pretty soon after that. She was buried with my grandfather back home in the mountains, about an hour east of our town. It was different than my dad. It was expected. And by the end, it seemed like a mercy. But I missed her. She spent the last good year of her life, the last one before dementia took complete hold, comforting and bonding with my brother and me, helping her daughter, my mom, through the worst days of her life. It was all at once heroic and ordinary. After all, that's what moms do. It wasn't something I truly recognized or understood at that age. It's only something you can see later. But it always stuck with me, along with another question. If my grandmother could fight to stave off her dementia for her daughter, why couldn't my mom be there like that for me? Mom's drinking, the walks, the sleeping with the TV on. It went on for about a year after my dad died. And then she went downhill fast and hard. She was immobilized with grief like nothing we'd seen the whole year since he died. It was scary, and I wasn't sure what to do. My little brother started coming to sleep in my room. He wasn't old enough to understand what was happening, but he knew something was wrong. It lasted about a week, and then all of a sudden, it stopped. It was like nothing had ever happened. She was sleeping in her room again, she was back to only drinking occasionally. I never saw her back at that tree line again. And me and my brother, we had our mom back. The only problem was, you can't just erase a year's worth of distance with the snap of your fingers, even as understandable as it was. We were never the same after that year and the distance never really healed. We weren't at each other's throats, or even all that unpleasant, even into my teenage years, but we were never really close again either. Not to mention, I had my own grief to overcome. And I think she tried, I really do, but it just wasn't enough. This was all on my mind, this trip down memory lane because it was the weekend before Thanksgiving. I'd requested off work for the whole week so I could fly home from Chicago and make the most of that time. 
I had packed up and I was getting ready to go to sleep when my phone rang. It was my brother, Donovan. He and I weren't close, but we weren't in a bad place either. We were just really different people. We'd text and send memes, happy birthday messages, things like that. But we weren't friends. We didn't confide in each other. And we didn't talk on the phone. When I saw his name on my phone as an incoming call, my heart dropped. I already knew. I was going home for a very different reason. He told me that it was an aneurysm. She was found just inside the door, like she'd been trying to get outside. It didn't make sense. Did she think she'd be able to drive for help? I guess your body just reacts when you're in a panic like that. There's no thought to it. I flew home the next day. I landed in Lexington, and I was supposed to call my brother from the airport, and he'd be coming to pick me up. From there, we'd drive the hour or so east toward our hometown. And then, I'm not sure what. We hadn't gotten that far. It just kind of seemed like we should be there, at the old house. That was the plan, and I completely intended to do all of that. But when I landed, I don't know. I just didn't feel like seeing him yet. I didn't want to talk about it. I realized then that I hadn't actually told anyone yet. Friends from home that I stay in touch with on social media had reached out. They'd all heard about it because everyone hears about everything in small towns. But I hadn't responded to them yet, and I didn't tell any of my friends in Chicago either. I wasn't ready to talk about it. And as soon as I saw Donovan, we'd have to talk about it. So I lied and I told him my flight was late and that he shouldn't wait on me. I'd rent a car and meet him there. He would understand. I wouldn't even really have to explain. He knows I'm like this. My phone buzzed, a thumbs up emoji. He'd probably already checked my flight number and saw that it had landed. I rented a car and I drove around the city, avoiding the inevitable. But eventually, I pointed my car east, toward home. There are two exits in my hometown. The first one has a few hotels, restaurants, there's a movie theater. The second exit empties out by an industrial park. Past that, there are a few neighborhoods, and then you're outside of town. From the edge of town, it was only a couple of minutes before I was pulling into my mom's driveway my childhood home, making my way up the gentle hill all the way to the top, coming to a stop by the front door. I still had a key on my key ring. It was still the first one she gave me when I was a teenager. I slid the key into the lock and pushed the door open. And there it was. That's the spot where it happened. I thought the house would feel different. I thought there would be a heaviness in the air, but there wasn't. The only strange thing was the feeling of being alone. I've come to visit, 
but I haven't been alone in this house in a long time. I walked through the place, just taking it in. I don't know what I expected. Crime scene tape? For the place to look ransacked or combed over? But it looked like she'd just gone out for errands. Like she was coming right back. I should really call my brother and let him know I was here. But I wanted to pretend just a little longer. I paced the house. From the front, it looks like a single story, but it's built into a hill. Around back, there's a basement door that leads outside. It's a finished basement and has a big back patio with a deck over top that looks out at the back of the property. My brother lived in this basement during college while he commuted to school in Lexington, but it was mostly storage now. A couch and a TV remained in the center of the room, but all along the walls there were boxes, the things that accumulate over a lifetime. Upstairs, there are big windows and a glass door leading out to the deck. There were framed photos all over the walls, me and Donovan at different ages, a few of the whole family, dad too. In the living room is where my mom kept my dad's most prized possession, an old radio and record player cabinet from the 1940s, back when a radio was a whole piece of furniture. He'd found it at a yard sale or a flea market. It didn't work, but he bought it on a whim, saying he'd fix it up one of these days. It sat in the basement for a long time, just another surface to pile on junk and other odds and ends. But eventually, he cleared it off, pulled out the old speakers, and put in modern ones. But he kept the original sound screens, so it still looked like it did when it was built. They moved it upstairs, and it stayed exactly where it sits now, the only thing in the house she never moved. I went into my old room. She'd turned it into a combination guest room and sitting room a long time ago, but it was still my bed from when I was a teenager. I flopped down on the mattress and rolled over, staring up at the ceiling. I was exhausted. What am I supposed to do now? I closed my eyes, and in moments, I was asleep. When I woke up, it took a moment to get my bearings. It was dark. How long had I been out? The energy in the house had changed. It felt uneasy. I checked my phone, the only source of light in the place. I had been asleep for three hours. There was a message from my brother. He'd asked if I'd landed yet. Another, then another. And finally, one from 30 minutes ago saying, I'm on my way. I wrote back and apologized, telling him I was already at mom's house. I got up and turned on a lamp in the living room and the kitchen lights too. A message back from my brother five minutes away. I could feel the irritation through the text. I stepped out onto the back deck. It faces away from town, out into the dark night. There was a flash of light in the distance, and then another. This was the direction that storms always came from when I was a kid. I used to watch them 
just like this on summer nights. I stepped up to the wooden rail, that uneasy feeling continuing to grow. Maybe it was the anticipation of the storm, but also it felt like there were eyes on me. I looked over my shoulder, through the glass door, and into the house. Nothing. Of course there was nothing. I leaned on the railing. A little breeze rustled through the grass and leaves. It felt nice against my face and in my hair. I don't know if I'd ever felt so alone in my life. It was just sinking in for the first time. I don't have parents anymore. The smell of rain was on the air, and the thunder was getting closer. There was a bright flash. I jumped at the sound. It was time to go inside. Just as I was turning toward the house, I saw headlights pan out across the field. A car was coming up the driveway. My brother. Perfect timing. I met him at the front door. Once he was inside, Donovan shook the rain from his coat. His hair was wet. He seemed irritated. It could have been the rain, but it was probably me blowing him off and lying about it. I apologized, and I told him it wasn't about him. I was just putting off having to talk about it. He shrugged. It's cool. I was just worried is all. I was going to call you soon, but I just needed to rest, I guess. I didn't mean to fall asleep. I didn't mean to keep you waiting like that. Yeah, it's, it's fine. Good flight? Yeah, it was fine. So, how, how have you been? Good. How about you? The same. He went over to the kitchen and started looking through the cabinets in the pantry. I felt a conflicted, protective instinct. Should we be raiding her fridge and going through everything? Shouldn't we wait? He read my expression, the way only siblings can. Come on. If she were here, she'd be offering us the whole kitchen anyway. That was true enough, I guess. He found a bottle of wine. I looked around for something to eat. Going through the cabinets, I couldn't help but notice all of her favorite snacks and foods. The little things that brought her comfort. Half-empty packages that she didn't get to finish. In the living room, there was one of those grocery store books of puzzles. A note for herself on the refrigerator. An unfinished book on the couch. Loose ends. Donovan and I had a drink, and then another. I'd been asleep for three hours, and I was wide awake now. Donovan started pacing around. He gets restless when he drinks. It occurred to me that neither of us had said anything about it yet. We're very different people, but in some ways, we're very much the same. Now was as good a time as any to break the ice. So, what's the plan? 
I was afraid that he would seem jarred by the question, but he didn't. Well, we need to meet with the funeral home tomorrow. I've made that appointment for us. And that's as far as I've gotten. What do we do with everything? The house? Her things? Is there a will? He'd made his way to Dad's old cabinet radio. He buried his head in the cabinet where Dad kept all of his old records. Can you believe she kept all these? I tried to keep us on topic. He does this when he wants to change the subject. Surely the funeral home people can point us in the right direction. They probably deal with people who don't know what to do all the time. He was still crouched down and out of sight, but he was holding a record up over his head. Do you know this one? No, I don't. Let's see what it is. We talked for a little while longer. We kept drinking, too. He was texting with someone while we talked and seemed distracted. Soon, he started getting tired. He said he was fine to drive back to the city, but I made him stay. He laid back on the couch, and soon, he was asleep. I turned off the record player, and I cleaned up around the living room. I double-checked the doors and then turned off the lights, leaving the one in the bathroom on in case either of us woke up disoriented. I went back to my old bedroom and laid down. I didn't bother changing. I knew I wasn't going to fall asleep for a while. We were supposed to have gotten started today, start figuring out what was next. But it was okay to put it off a day. I think we both needed the night to decompress and reconnect a little bit. I was still wide awake in the dark house, but with my brother here, it didn't feel as menacing as it did before. There were still distant flashes outside the window, far away peals of thunder. All of a sudden, it all came back to me again. I thought about that day when I stayed home from school the day the loudspeakers at the Little League field started blaring, the way it lasted into the night. The last time I went for a drive with my dad. And then it washed over me, that familiar lump in my throat, that aching that never really goes away. I don't know how much later it was when I woke up. It had been a shallow and restless sleep. It was still dark outside. The thunder and lightning had passed on and I could see moonlight through the curtains. It was quiet, like those nights I woke up years ago, that figure standing in my doorway, but there was nothing there. And then I noticed what had woken me up. The sound of the record player. Hadn't we turned that off? I remembered this song from when I was a kid, from the before times, 
I used to hear it at night when my parents thought we were asleep. And again, after he was gone. When my mom would stay up all by herself. The record player must have restarted or something. I got up and staggered into the living room. I expected to find my brother, having woken up and leaning back on the couch. His eyes closed, listening to the melody. Or I thought maybe the grief had hit him unexpectedly, and I'd find him in tears. But as I came down the hallway into the living room, the lights were still off. He was asleep. I went around the couch, and I opened the top of the radio cabinet. The record was spinning inside. Someone had started up the record player, and it wasn't my brother. I pulled the needle up, and all at once the mood in the room changed again. I felt exposed with all the windows and the sliding glass doors looking out onto the property. It felt like there were eyes on me all over again. Outside, I could see the first glimpses of sunlight on the horizon. The clock on the stove said 6.20 in the morning. When I looked back to the big glass door, I could see all the way out to the tree line. And I could see something else, too. Something right at the edge of the forest. A figure wearing white. It was just visible behind the first row of trees, walking just past the brush line. It was too far away. I couldn't make out any features. It stopped from time to time and faced the house. Surely it couldn't see me. It was too far, and it was too dark inside to see in. And then it turned. The figure walked deeper into the forest, and then out of sight. Thank you for joining us for this episode of 13. If you don't want to wait for the rest of the series, it's all available on Patreon right now. Join us at patreon.com slash 13pod. There's a link in the show notes. If you like what you heard, stop what you're doing and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This was part one of The Mist and the Trees, written by Ian Epperson, narrated by Brooke Jeanette. Emma Sherjarko was mom. Ian Epperson was dad. Dustin Parsons was Donovan. Music editing and sound design by Kayla Ritchie. Assistance from Bridget Freeman. Our producer-level patrons are Rick Linville, Tattooed Fox, Rhiannon, Sean Geary, Anthony Diaz, Jackie Kay, Delta Tango, Chantel Payne, Nick, Emily Douglas, Stephanie Klinger, and Jake R. Thank you so much for your support. 
Click the link in the show notes to learn more about joining us on Patreon. Check us out on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok under Pod 13. And you can join the Facebook group for 13 Podcast. Just look for the logo. You'll find links in the show notes. If you'd like to submit a story to be performed on the show, or if you'd like to contact us about anything else, get in touch at info at 13podcast.com. You'll find submission guidelines and other info on our website, 13podcast.com. You can find that in the show notes too. Bridget Freeman has been holding on to your record player. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month.